There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane Gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today's topic, writing tools. Joining us on the podcast today is Roy Peter Clark. Roy was with us recently to talk about his new book, Murder Your Darlings. As you probably know, Roy has been a faculty member at the Pointer Institute for many years, and before that, a writing coach at the St. Petersburg Times. He's also the author and editor of 19 books. Today, we're going to talk to him about his bestseller, Writing Tools, which has been translated into six languages and now has more than a quarter of a million copies in print. And we were talking before this podcast about how many times our copies have been stolen um, or borrowed and never returned. So today, we wanted to talk about this list of writing tools. If you aspire to be a great writer, you should commit these to memory or have them taped up near your computer. And we're not going to go over them all. You need to go buy this book. And yeah, my husband, Dan, teaches um, high school English and writing, and he's used this book for years and years, both with dropout prevention programs and with advanced AP English classes. So it's it's definitely speaks to writers of all ilks. So we wanted to pick out some of our favorites Yay. and have Roy talk about some of our favorites. <laughs> and he can talk about some of his favorites. But go ahead. You start, Lane. Well, my favorite one is, um, I don't know what number this is in the tips, but order your words for emphasis. Number two. Number two. Okay. Oh, see, it's, he's got it very high up there. <laughs> What do you like about this tip? And with you, you follow, you try to follow this tip all the oh, time. Oh, I do. And I, I hope it's become more natural for me to just do that as a writer. But I, I'll really look for that when I'm editing. You know, when I'm going back through my, my final draft before I give it to you or somebody else, I, I look at that and say, what's the strongest word? What do I want people to walk off with? You know, it's mm-hmm. almost like your walk-off song yeah. or something. It's a very easy thing to, to spot in your own writing. Um, it's not always easy to do naturally, but I think mm-hmm. it makes things so much stronger in the editing process. Yeah, and um, it works for me like in th- in three stages, maybe even four. The idea is at the sentence level, there's a hot spot, okay? And journalists know that there's a hot spot at the beginning. When we're acting as journalists, we tend to be front-loaded for the most part. And therefore, we don't pay as much attention as to the opportunities. We know what the... Uh, the locomotive looks like, but uh, the caboose can be kind of an interesting little final element, you know, at the end of the train. And what I learned from writers that I work with, like Lane and Tom French and others, is that there are these hot spots in the story. The end of the sentence is a hot spot. Hotter is the end of a paragraph. Even hotter, if the story is long enough, it's kind of like, let's call it uh, the end of a mini chapter or a segment. And then, of course, if you're going to go to that work, you know, you want something at the end that rewards the reader for going all the way through that. Place the emphatic word at the end. Now, let's, let's look at that sentence, what I just said. Place the emphatic word in a sentence at the end. So it's an example of emphatic word order because the most important word there is end. 
this this is so important that we can discover it in all different forms of expression. In addition to writing prose and, and poetry, uh, I'm thinking of, um, let's talk about humor. When we talk about a joke having a punchline, what we really mean is the thing that makes you laugh comes at the end. As a teenager, I learned this series of jokes, this is really nerdy, where the, the adverb is the punchline, sorry. I hate this pizza, he said crustily. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that silence you heard. I'm, yeah. I'm the Venus de Milo, she said disarmingly. Oh, Lord. Oh, I've dropped my toothpaste, he said, crestfallen. Okay, <laughs> so the funny bit goes at the end. But also, let's, let's just move the realm, move the genre. Think of oratory. If we were to study Lincoln, Dr. King, Michelle Obama said at the Democratic National Convention, referring to the White House, I live in a house that was built by slaves, right? Not slaves built, built the house, house I live yeah. in. Right. What I often ask writers to do is, actually the first thing I ask them to do is look at a text that they've written and put a check mark at the white space. Put a check mark there and there. I have a text in front of me. There, there. So if the period is a stop sign, the period followed by that white space at the end of the paragraph is like a stoplight. And so since it's a more significant stop, the word that comes at the end. So Tom French wrote about a, a dead chimpanzee, right, at uh, Lowry Park Zoo. Altogether, he lived at Lowry Park Zoo for 35 years. He lasted there longer than any other creature and longer than any of the humans. Each of the 1,800 animals at the zoo is assigned a number. His was zero, 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 one. Okay? Now, a bad editor would have written, would have rewritten it. His number was zero, 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 one, first among the 1,800 animals at the zoo. But what Tom does is four things. He puts it at the end of a sentence. He puts it at the end of a paragraph. He puts it at the end of a, you can't see it, but like a chapter, if you want to call it that. And then he puts it at the end of the shortest sentence. Earlier, we talked about the Jesus wept effect, that the short sentence has the feel of the, of the gospel truth. So it adds all these uh, elements. I called him up, and he said, you give me too much credit, except this, that when I sat down to write this passage, I knew the number would come last, zero, 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 one. So what I love about that piece of advice, a lot of, a lot of the advice that you have here, but that, that one too, I think a lot of people who want to be Lane— a lot of these writers that I meet and you probably meet too, who aspire to that, you know, may never be Lane, but probably not going to be Lane. Um, but you can always improve your writing. I mean, and, and it is, it's not sort of mystical. It's like you, you, you can learn some things that'll help you. And this one is a really easy thing to learn and to apply. And I still read stories. I'm sure you guys do every day where I see this happening and I think, Oh God, if they had just even, even yeah. stuff like, they put the attribution at the end instead of in the middle. And, yeah. they, you know, it's like, come on, you could just learn this and, and apply this and it would really help you. That's a great example. So years ago, there was a plane crash over Marion Township in Philadelphia. And Senator Hines, remember Senator yes, Hines was killed that. in the, yeah. he was yep. in a helicopter, I think. And a yep. helicopter hits a small plane and it falls to the, uh, to, to the ground onto a, uh, an elementary school playground and kills children you know, on the ground. A tremendous story with amazing detail, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, and they quoted uh, a source named uh, Helen Amadio. 
She said, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. There were just bodies everywhere. So the the technical question, now that's, a, we know as journalists, we hear that's a, oh man, that's a that's an amazingly powerful quote. But technically, you still have to decide where you're going to put the attribution. You can put it at the beginning, you can put it at the end. But I think in that particular case, the reporter made, and the editor made a really good decision was, it was the worst thing I'd ever seen, said Helen Amadio from her Hampton Avenue front porch. There were just bodies everywhere. Forces right? you to pause. Yeah. Yes. That's my default. I like yeah. to put the attribution yeah. in the middle. Yeah, I think that's. I think it works so often. Because it, it devalues the quote if you put it at the end, mm-hmm. I think. You know, you have this big, beautiful quote, and then it ends the sentence, if not the paragraph, with he said, she said. Mm-hmm. And, and let's stipulate that sometimes the attribution is the most important thing on occasion. What do you want to emphasize? What's most important and most interesting? In journalism, isn't that the basic definition of news judgment? Something is either interesting or important or on uh, with the um, people sick with the coronavirus on a, on a uh, cruise ship. When those two things come together, that's when journalists, I think, feel most like they're fulfilling their mission and purpose. Okay, so here's another one. I really like this one. Know when to back off and when to show off. I like this because I think people make this mistake all the time. Yeah, um, I've learned just enough about classic traditional rhetoric to know that the Greeks had a name for freaking everything. So I don't know whether this is a zoigma. Everybody look up Z-E-U-G-M-A. He ate his toast and his words. All right, so you, I, I think that's a Zoigba, but I'm not sure. Where you take, uh, is it? Oh, my God. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> uh, so the idea is you take, um, you know, you, you have a verb as two different subjects. They both fit, but they're like in different realms. Uh-huh. Or another one I can't remember is like uh, something that goes like, um, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Or one of those that I really like is, um, I think Dorothy Parker wrote, I'd rather, have, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> so these all have names. Now, we actually know some of the names. The most significant one is, uh, is hype, right? What is the word hype? Well, it's a shortened verb of the Greek word hyperbole, which is uh, the word for um, exaggeration. Right, um, the opposite. There's another Greek word. Uh, uh, it's called litotes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S, which is the opposite. So it's understatement. So exaggeration and understatement. And so I think what we learn historically is when you have a certain kind of story that's so powerful. I remember as a 15 year old or 16 year old reading the stories about the assassination of JFK, and how meticulous the writers were about not overwriting that story with their language, their emotional language, but letting the facts, which in themselves were so amazing and devastating, be up front. In general, not all the time. These are not, by the way, we're talking about tools, not rules. I learned from um, Anna Quinlan and Frank Klein's, they used to have a competition who could write their way onto the front page of the New York Times. And the idea was 
you get a story on the front page that no one would say at the meeting, at the news meeting, well, that belongs on the front page. But you write it so well. The example that he used was that he found a 12, 13-year-old girl in New Jersey who was the all-time champion Girl Scout cookie salesperson of all times. And he went to interview her, and all through the interview, rather than answer his questions, she was hustling thin mints on him and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the, the girl's name was, was uh, Marquita, and he wrote it in this, um, this wonderfully kind of exaggerated literary way. And it was right smack dab in the middle of um, you know the front page of the New York Times. So, when it's not so important, but you can make it interesting, go ahead and uh, and dance. And uh, when it's really important, step back. I guess an, an analogy would be: sometimes you want the camera pointing on the cool things you're doing, and sometimes you really don't want that at all. Orwell says good writing is like a window pane. Interesting because. Something you never notice or rarely notice. But the pain creates the, the view for you to look out onto the world. I think so many writers get caught up. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sometimes when you're writing something dramatic and getting a little more, not thinking of it necessarily as hype, but just, you know, that ad- added line, on, uh, one other step that just sort of is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then like you say in that role, like, yeah. And when you're, when you're trying to overhype it, you might be having fun. You're purposely doing it that way. Yeah, you I know, think it, when people try to be writerly, quote unquote writerly, it's when it gets really bad. Right. You know, it's, it, like, it's almost more important to try to be less writerly. Right. You know, right. To let the, let the moments, you know, you were talking, I was thinking about a, a, a story we did in Houston where, it was a serial rapist and, and he was taking, there was a scene where he's taking this woman into a, a room where you know that she's going to be raped. And the scene kept getting shorter and shorter because it was almost worse to have you imagine what's mm-hmm. about to happen than to lay too much of it out there for you and not trying to cue the, you know, the big dramatic music. I mean, just this is something serious that's about to go down here and, and, you know, you don't really need to you draw back. Let it, let it sort of. Now, I can think of maybe one exception, in it, and it's a significant one, a, a piece of writing I did for the Times, Tampa Bay Times. Someone asked me at a writing conference what my favorite word was. I said, colonoscopy. <laughs> That's not true, though, right? Well, <laughs> I was trying to think of another word that has four O's in it. You know, I couldn't do it. But I had just written a feature uh, in the Times, I guess the old Floridian, about having a colonoscopy. And at a certain age, you know, you're encouraged to do it. I must have been 60 years old or something like that. But what was really interesting is that I found something that that frightened me, worried me. And what worried me was like there were so many people who I had talked to who said to me, oh, I'm never going to get that test. 
Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-oh, I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to go. I said, what are you, like four years old? You know, this could, you know. And so I said, I have to write something that's going to sort of break through this, these inhibitions. And I wrote um, the lead, My Butt Could Save Your Life. <laughs> now, Jackie Benishinsky said to me, why didn't you say, My Butt Could Save Your Ass, right? And I said, no, no, no. That would make it satire. I said, I want these two elements, my butt and your life, to kind of exist like uh, tool number uh, 28, put odd and interesting things next to each other. <laughs> your, your butt, butt and my butt. life. <laughs> yep. Those are odd I don't know which is odd or which, which is interesting. Is, yeah, but. <laughs> okay. but here's the idea. My mission for the piece, and that's another one of the tools, is to have – I had a clear mission. I wanted somebody with an inhibition about this – to pick up this piece, which had some humor in it and that led to the serious aspects to it, to go for the test. And I got a phone call from the clinic saying it happened a week later. And that a 50-year-old lady with no previous history was diagnosed with the beginnings of, wow. of cancer. And so, mission accomplished. So, Lane, pick another one. Okay, I, this was one of the most like light bulby moments for me, and it came from Tom French via you, and it was use internal cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. I yeah. never thought about using cliffhangers. Like when, when I was transitioning from being a news reporter writing three stories a day, just kind of gathering the information and coughing it back up to becoming a narrative writer, I knew the idea of like ask having it, an internal question that you want the readers to follow along. What's going to happen? Usually that's my driving question. What's going to happen? Is the guy going to get the girl? Is the dog going to find his way home? Whatever. But I never thought about internal cliffhangers. Yeah. So I think I learned those from watching television, traditional television, hour-long uh, series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, uh, you know, something always happens at the 12-minute mark because you're going to have a commercial. And those are internal cliffhangers. They don't want you to uh, to go away. And then American Idol. Oh, jeez. Yep. Um, <laughs> and the person who is, you know, who will be advancing or whatever like that uh, will announce in just uh, a minute. So this idea of suspense, Tom French calls suspense, enforced waiting, which is also a little bit counterintuitive to journalistic craft, mm-hmm. where what was our mission usually? It's to... Get it out there as soon as we know that there's been this, uh, this terrible accident. Kobe Bryant and his daughter. Yeah, we don't want you to wait. We, we don't want you to wait. Yeah. But in the storytelling realm, it's, 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 it's very, very important. There are hugely successful books. Um, I'm thinking maybe The Da Vinci Code is probably one of them. When I read The Da Vinci Code, I said to myself, there is not one memorable sentence in this entire book. However, the chapters are quite short, and almost every single chapter has this, this mini cliffhanger. It's paced really well, yeah. It's paced well, and it's easy when you have two plots, like a plot and a subplot, because you can leave the plot and then go pick up the subplot and then go back and forth. Well, that's another thing I like about internal cliffhangers. Just like you were using the TV analogy, like mm-hmm. you have a cliffhanger, you're going to stick through it through the commercial. Yeah. You know, you might go get a Coke and come back, but you're going to stick through it. Yeah. And, and internal cliffhangers allow me as a writer, I feel like, to, to make people stop and then give them the information they might need to have that they might not want to digest otherwise. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Is this little kid going to die or get the miracle cure? Yeah. Well, now I can tell you the whole history of 
the cure and the gene therapy because you go, you want to know if this kid's going to live Absolutely. or die. Absolutely. But I can bury some of that boring broccoli science stuff between the cliffhangers. Yeah. That's good. This is a little technical, but I, I, th- I think we can, uh, I can describe it briefly here. Um, one of the tools is to mix narrative modes. It says combine story forms using the broken line. And I think what you're talking about, you very often have a storyline, right? A narrative line where this is happening and this is happening. But you interrupt that with a nut paragraph or with a nut chapter. Background. You know, background and things like that. Where you stop the narrative line determines in large measure whether anybody is going to read the next you know, section uh, or not. When I came to the Times, they were really innovating in uh, design and color, something brand new, color and newspapers. And instead of vertical designs, they had, I think, called modular designs where things were in boxes and things like that. Well, every fourth or fifth paragraph, if it went long enough, they would take the first three words and boldface them. But they would do it like uh, numerically, not in terms of content or meaning. So you'd get boldfaced and then the. And I said to them, I said, have you ever thought about breaking the story up and having these divisions, having the writer help figuring out where are the best places to break up the story sort of typographically and visually? Same thing with jumps, right? Um, there came a time maybe when uh, David Finkel was in in the house or something like that where the converse, there started being conversation. If I'm going to have a big story on a Sunday and I'm going to jump off the front page, am I going to jump in the middle of a sentence or am I going to try to calculate this with the help of designers to make sure that when you get to the bottom, get to that jump, it raises a question that you have to go on you know, to answer. I think all writers are interested in that. I used to sit by the designer just so I could say that. Like, where's it going to jump? How, how many inches do I have before it jumps? And I would write my story to that sometimes instead of the other way around. Because, yeah, you're, yeah. it's, yeah, it, it's going to be make or break you. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So let's do one more. Brilliant. Which, appropriately, write toward an ending. Uh-huh. I love that tip. We were talking in the in the other podcast as well with Roy about how um, journalists spend a lot of time on beginnings and obsess about beginnings. But I really do think readers... It's the ending that they care about in many ways. It's that feeling of what you walk away with and mm-hmm. how, to, how did that story make you feel? Do you feel like you got a great payoff? It's the same feeling in a movie or a book or something. Yeah. If you went through that whole journey, do you really feel like it was worthwhile? So I find still a lot of people don't pay as much attention to the ending as they should. Or wrap it up with some quote, some yeah, insipid just, quote. Or, yeah, it kind of ends flat instead of... You know. I think I have this right. J.K. Rowling, who's published in America by Little Brown, by the way, my publisher, I haven't. They haven't hooked me up yet, but I'm. Uh, I'm hoping. <laughs> Will you invite us too? You sure? I need a Harry Potter writing tips book. Yes. Oh, oh, Cha-ching. you just Sam. gave him the next book. That would be good. Um, so the story is that she knew the last line of the seventh book before she wrote the first line of the first book. The last word was supposed to was going to be scar. And that's a significant word in the series, we, we, we know from the very beginning. But she changed her mind, you know, and, and ended it a different way. But this idea that she could see the full arc of the story before she began writing the, the first book is, is very interesting. And I think inspirational in the sense that it's important for writers to ask themselves that. I wrote a little bit of fiction 
a newspaper novel, if you will, for the New York Times group back on, uh, on the millennium. And I, I knew that this fictional story that I was writing was going to end on December 31st, you know, leading up to the year 2000, in a thunderstorm on top of the Skyway Bridge. Okay. So I had, you know, I had the full theatrical re- review. And it was, I knew I could change my mind. But I, it really did sort of create some momentum. My problem identified by my brother Vincent, is that I overwrite my endings, right? Or not, that's not actually uh, true. Uh, I'll put it a different way. We know that you can bury your lead, right? Well, I bury endings. That's because I'm a putter-inner. If I'm thinking about it, it's going to go in a draft of uh, the story. My brother Vincent uh, says that I write concerto endings, so what do you mean? He said, "Yeah, you think you're like a big shot writer, and so you got to like uh, your uh, Beethoven, you know? No, it's like a." Lane's written a few of those. I know. I can recognize. Cut off my last three paragraphs. He's Rachmaninoff. So what I literally do almost every time is put my hand over the last paragraph. Not cutting from the bottom, but I'm asking myself, what would happen if the story ended here? And very often you find the natural mm-hmm. rather than the imposed uh, right. ending. I think you can learn to listen for endings too in like in interviews. Like I, we did this Valentine's story the other day and I was interviewing these old people for like three hours. But I knew at about one hour and 45 minutes what my ending was going to be because I heard it. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't think I used to pay attention to that. But you, so when you're reporting, sometimes you can be looking for your endings as well as your beginnings, I think. Yeah, I think this is this is very important technique uh, for for especially for journalists and reporters. The idea that what you're doing there is you're merging the writing and reporting process and you're rehearsing. And look, among other things, that solves problems and saves time. Because you've got to turn it around sometimes like uh, very quickly. So uh, you're writing the story in the field while you're reporting it. If you don't get what you need out there, sometimes it's really hard when you get back to the office uh, to get the access you need to recover. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Okay, so go buy the book, Writing Tools, and learn a lot more from Roy. If you have a question for Roy or for Lane, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Or find us on our Facebook group. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Allison Graves. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.